Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Dr. Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. If you want to help support the show, you can uh, use our code ADVICES and shop with True Nutrition. Hey, guys, if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube page yet, please do. And um, if, you, uh, if you're there, you enjoy this stuff, then, then hit the like button and uh, leave us your comments. Scott, where would we get started, brother? Okay, so... There was a study that actually you sent. I'd seen it before, but I hadn't really focused on it. And I hadn't dug into it. There's so many studies coming out. It was one of one that Brad Schoenfeld was involved with. Just kudos to him. And if you want to throw up the title of the study, it's from Journal Strength Conditioning Research by some folks down in Sao Paulo, Brazil. All right. And it's muscle failure promotes greater muscle hypertrophy in low load but not high load resistance training. Hmm. So I wanted to sort of tie together some bits and pieces for people because there's one aspect of this idea of exchanging effort for volume that's connected to this notion that volume is the driver of muscle hypertrophy. So the driver of muscle growth. And that notion is that of reps in reserve. So the idea of reps and reserve, I think it was Mike Twitcher, if I'm saying his name right, um, kind of came up and entered, brought this into the um, the vernacular, so to speak, of bodybuilders in the lifting world. And it's the number of reps that you feel like you estimate at some point in time during your set, maybe at the start or halfway through, that you can do until you fail. So hold on just a second. I'm going to switch you back over so I can actually see. I've got so many versions of the video going on. Um, so let's say you pick up a load and like right off the bat, you say, what do you think you can get? And I think you do three reps and you think I've got 10 more. Your reps will be 10. Um, if you get eight reps into it, you might ask again and say, what's your rep, how many reps do you have left? Reps reserve. I think I got three more in me. That would be reps and reserve measured at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So it's going to vary depending on the person, depending on their experience. There's some, we've talked about this before, people who don't haven't trained before, don't have experience in the gym, their reps and reserve estimations can be way off. Sure. They can like literally think, you know, I got five more left. And if they have someone who pushes them, they'll get 10, Yeah, for instance, or more. So, but that is a nice bit. It's a nice piece of information that you can use to auto-regulate. So you can, it, it relates to RPE, rating of perceived exertion. They've also done a lot. People are starting to do a lot of work now with sort of bar velocity or movement velocity. So as you fatigue, the bar should slow down. One way you can tell when someone's like kind of uh, sandbagging in the gym yeah. is if the first rep and the last rep, was, which is supposedly the hardest rep, the, like maybe feel like they look the same. Dude, there's no slowing. There's no grinding. Since you've all. told me this, I've been yeah. using that as a tool to watch myself. Oh, okay, yeah. Because sometimes I I feel like. On some exercises, and I can't tell you which, on some exercises, I start and end pretty similar. And the amount of uh, the amount that I slow down, it, it doesn't it doesn't look like I'm really grinding. But mm -hmm. when I and, and then I'll end the set. And usually it's because I'm feeling so much pain, but I'm fighting against that pain and pulling just as hard. But then I right. realized I'm like, but I'm still moving almost as fast. Or I'll right. shoot video. I'm at home training, so I can shoot video of all my sets, and then I'll review each one of them. And, right. and say like, okay, I, and that's one of the tools I've been using since we've talked about that a few weeks ago, a few episodes uh -huh. ago, and I'm watching how fast uh -huh. I'm moving and asking myself, was I really 
was I really failing or could I have taken that a little further? Could I have gotten one more, two more? Did I grind it out? Yeah. 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 Some of that's going to be a function of how well the loading curve matches the strength curve. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's so you have those sticking points where literally you're you're like pushing through, and all of a sudden you just if you had a better match between those two things, the feel of the exercise, sort of a more kind of bro way to say it, you wouldn't have that sticking point. But you have a sticking point like ah shit, you always get caught like at that one part in the range of motion. So you never really have like those grinder reps where you're just pushing chest past those. Yeah. Because the relative effort required different points in the range of motion is higher. So it's maybe like it's an eight, except for that small range where the sticking point is. And there it's a 10. Mm-hmm. It's always where you get caught. So if you're trying to maintain an even, even rep speed, which would make sense, you're not trying to be herky jerky. You're going to have an even rep speed until you hit that sticking point and then you're stuck mm. and then you come down. Yeah. So that's, that's something like, you know, good powerlifters can see where, where people's sticking points are on presses and squats and those sorts of things too. That makes sense. And they'll do all sorts of things, you know, overload through those and you, now know, you do. You got me thinking more now. Yeah. There's a lot of neurological stuff going on. Yeah. You've got me thinking more now. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. I've got some yeah. ideas I'm going to okay. mess with with yeah, we bands. Can talk, we can talk, yeah. We can talk about <laughs> later maybe. Or, sure. Yeah. Bands and chains are good for that. The other thing is muscle endurance as well. So if you looked at just you can take muscle and you and just stimulate it with e-stim or you just look at muscle that's got more type 1 fibers or more mitochondria, the, the, the drop-off in force, the muscle endurance is better. The fatigue resistance is better. So with those high endurance type of muscles, you're going to see the rep speed is going to drop off uh, less so rep by rep whereas someone and, and like there was um actually you may have seen tom prince has been on rx muscle a little bit lately okay i, I didn't know that i haven't watched yeah, it in he, a while but yeah he um i just listened it's on the youtube but i just listened to it mostly he was talking about why how he used to train he did like only sets of like five to eight okay like wow. that, those were his work sets but he did tons of them really high volume but it's really heavy huh, yeah and some people do better with that and who was it um Lyle McDonald was talking about a client that he had where they just kept training and progressing within a very low rep range because that person had poor muscle endurance, but the person was fairly big, I think, and obviously Tom Prince was gigantic, trained really, really hard. But for for those those are two individuals of people who probably wouldn't have done well with higher reps because they just they don't, they don't have the fatigue resistance. They fatigue so much. You know, once 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 the set gets up to what would have been ten or twelve, their fatigue resistance would just basically shut down the set. Yeah. So they prefer to train in those higher rep ranges. A lot of fast twitch, fatigable fibers. Those are the ones that tend to grow the best hmm. in a lot of the research. So anyway, the, so the reps and reserve is a nice thing that we can use to auto regulate too. So or or to gauge or at least direct the level of effort that you're putting forth in the training. So like when I do the heavy loading sets and fortitude training, this was before even like the reps and reserve notion was even out there. I used to just say leave one in the compound sets. If you're doing more than them, leave a one or two reps in the tank, one or two reps in reserve. Hmm. So you're getting pretty damn close to failure, but you're leaving one or two reps in reserve and you're not going to failure. Some of that's just practical. If you're doing heavy, heavy sets with like a free weights and, you're going down to a failure point and the bars like, you know, it's pinned you or you're in a, in a rack and then you have to unload it, bring it back to the start, whatsoever. It's kind of a pain in the ass. 
So, but you can you can gauge that and say, you know, I'm going to do like like a John Meadows type of program. You might you, he he's used various ways to do this. I think in his different programs, people who've done all of them would know. But you might do four sets of a given exercise, and you leave two or three reps in reserve in those first three sets, and the last set would only be be the only one to failure. Yes, for instance. So you can use that as your relative gauge. You can also use the reps in reserve and say, you know what. I picked up on my warm-up sets, you know, that's how I was going to work my way up to two and a quarter. And when I picked up 185, I did a set of eight, mm-hmm. which I'm at you doing Ben of a Rose now as an example. Okay. And I felt like when I finished that set of eight, I had like six reps reserve mm-hmm. one day. When the, the another day, like I felt like I had 10 reps reserve. I could have done a shitload. Mm-hmm. That suggests you're stronger. Mm. So the rest reserve is a way to kind of estimate your strength, your level of recovery, mm. how well you're progressing along the road. So, so one of the things that's been put forth by this guy named Chris Beardsley, who's out there, he's pretty well known, a lot of followers on Instagram, is this idea of effective reps. And that is that you have to come within the notion that's been sort of set out in a very hard and fast way, and it's obviously not that way, but is that you, you have to come within about five reps in reserve or closer to failure for you to accumulate what are called effective reps. Hmm. So if you're gonna do a set of 12 and you stop at six, meaning you have six reps to reserve, or you could do 12, so you would have six reps to reserve, you didn't, none of those were effective for stimulating muscle growth. But that is gonna vary um, depending on the person, how well they estimate rest and reserve, depending on the exercise, and depending on the load hmm. that you're using. So. If you're talking about, in this case, something that you might get like, um, let's let's say it's five reps in reserve, is your effective reps reps that what you consider effective reps. If you're talking about doing thirty rep sets, that's twenty five reps in a thirty rep set to failure. Hmm. That has a very different stimulus than doing five reps in a ten rep to sit, to failure. Hmm type of regime so the study we're going to talk about the one you you put up and maybe it's back down now is kind of a it's it's one angle in on this issue which is okay. kind of a cool one so just to, and i'm doing this in order to sort of like get people to think about you know the reps reserve notion how it's a function of the load you're using mm-hmm. and as well as your state of fatigue how well you can estimate it, your, everything. There's all sorts of things that are there, but it's useful, but it's also got some limits. So let's see if I've forgotten anything here. So there's another study. I didn't. I got nothing to, to put up about it, but basically there's another study that was just came out um, in this journal strength conditioning research just in this year, in the last month or month or two, I think. It just came across my desk. Um, is that they've actually can blind people. They did in this case, I think, 60 and 80 percent of one rep max, and they didn't tell them what load was on the bar. Okay. And they just asked them, yeah, to uh, um, when they got a few reps into it, reps into it. So um, on the sixty percent of one rep max, that's that's something they were getting. That was about halfway through their sets. They they get about eight reps in and say, well, how many reps do you have in reserve? And on the eighty percent, which is maybe about six reps in this case, they asked them, how many reps reserve could you get? And when they compared on those different loads, whether they knew what the weight was or didn't know what the weight was, they didn't know if they're going heavy or lighter, what it was, blinded, they were able to estimate just from how the load felt. Huh, okay. 
So you can tell to some degree, at least there's no difference in how accurately you can predict. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing was they had them do three sets with a standardized rest interval. And the first set, they were able to predict with some level of accuracy. I'm not sure how much how much it was. It doesn't matter for the listeners mainly. But as they got closer to failure on those second and third sets, they were able to more accurately predict mm. at the third rep or, rep or the eighth rep mm. what their reps in reserve would be. And that's probably because they're closer to failure. So take home point for that. Does that matter? Like, are you going to really ever estimate what your reps in reserve are when you're halfway through the set? Probably not. For most people, if you're talking about getting to something that are effective reps and doing sets that friggin' matter, meaning you have effective reps, you're going to be gauging those reps in reserve near the end of the set. Sure. And you get pretty dang good at that after a while. Yeah. You know when you got one, two, or three left, if you're well-trained or not. Yeah. So reps reserve can be very helpful, but that's not you. You probably want to figure that out as you get deeper into the set. Yeah. One thing I have found that's pretty freaking cool. It's kind of weird. I've seen this in so many people and in myself. I can pick up a weight for, let's say, a muscle round, or when I was doing a lot of DC training rest pause sets, I can pick up a weight and know right off the bat like it's the perfect weight. Like I yeah. would know, like yeah. Some of it was probably self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm thinking I'm going to get about uh, 12 with this. Yeah. Some of it's probably in here. I probably engineered that, you know, and you can change the rep speed a little bit so that your reps match what you have in mind. Yeah. Literally in mind, but, uh, you get good at that. So yeah. the reps reserve can be very, very useful. So here's the interesting thing about this study. I thought it was really, really nicely done. And let's see, let's see what figure we want to put up now. They had basically their, they split their uh, subjects, randomly split them, in the, and these were completely untrained people. They weren't even really recreationally active in any sort of sporting activity. They're completely just as untrained as you could be, essentially. Okay. Um, but healthy. And they had them, they used one of these one-legged training models. So they did three sets of knee extensions, I think, two or three times a week. Okay. And to failure. Well, sorry, not to failure. Um, they had a high load, uh, condition and a low load condition. So half the individuals were doing using 80% of a one rep max mm -hmm. and the other half were using 30% of one rep max. And whether you're in the heavy or the light, one group trained to failure or one leg, one leg trained to failure. And then the other leg did not train to failure. Hmm. And instead they left a, quite a bit of reps in reserve. In fact, what they did was if you got 10 reps on one set in the heavy group, in this case, the 80% one rep max or seven reps or eight reps, they would have the other leg. So you train the heavy leg first, mm -hmm. go through that training regime, the three sets for that day. And then you go to the non-failure leg and do about 60% of those reps <laughs> and simply accumulate the same training volume. Okay. So... What this meant then, and I'll look at the numbers, and we'll show them in just a second, so don't quite okay. pop that out yet. What this meant then for like the heavy 80% one rep max is that people were doing about 12 reps per set for three sets. And when they took them down to about 60% of those reps and had them do more sets to match, mm -hmm. so literally sometimes some of those sets would have been just a few reps just to add up the workload. 
So that all matched. They were doing like 6.7 reps on average per set. So not all those sets. And they were doing five and a half sets. So you do three sets to failure, averaging about 12. And then you go down and do, you know, 60% of that, which would have been about seven reps. So they might do a, a set of five sets of seven and then like a set of three or something like that hmm. to accumulate the volume. So reps in reserve for those sets were five or so, even for the heavy stuff. Hmm. When they, and they, so they're trying to equate all these things. This is the tough thing about the side. There's lots of ways you could equate things. They didn't equate the reps in reserve. Uh, uh, what they did is they equated the number of reps per set to 60% in the non-failure condition. Hmm. So in the heavy group, they did what I just mentioned. In the light group, they're doing lots of reps. Yeah. 30% of 100 max. They're averaging 34 reps per set for those three sets. Wow. And they set this up so that they would get about the training, same training volume, whether you're in the, in the high, same workload, so amount of work done, weight times reps, basically. So it added up to be the same in the heavy and the light conditions. Oh, okay. So like it, train, it would be like if I were doing 100 pounds 10 times versus 10 pounds 100 times. It's Yeah. Okay. I'm just making sure I'm following. Yep. Gotcha. Yep, basically like that. Yeah, but they're so now they're doing 34 rep sets. Yeah, yeah. With 30% of one rep max. Okay. To failure on one leg and then they then they had to match that training volume but only doing 60% of the reps which meant they were doing about 20 reps per set with huh. weight that they could could have done about 34 reps with. Okay. That made the reps in reserve basically 15 reps. So there's there's they're going a little bit past halfway into those sets, 60% of the way into those sets and matching them. So they ended up doing instead of three sets about five and a half sets. Yeah. Which makes sense. You know, numerically that's exactly what you'd expect if they're doing it that way. And then they looked at the growth. So the interesting thing here, they matched the volume in all these conditions. So, and it's kind of cool because they had one person would do heavy to failure and heavy not failure. And then the other, another person would do light to failure and light not to failure. So they had either you were training heavy or you're training light. And on one leg, you train to failure heavy and then not to failure heavy. Or if you're in the light training condition, you train to failure light, high rep sets, and then you train not to failure light, pretty easy sets, relatively speaking. What that meant in the heavy condition, because it just matched the percentage of reps to failure, it was about you know five or six reps in reserve. So they weren't even getting into what you would call the effective reps zone hmm. in this particular case. Remember, these are completely untrained people. Yeah, yeah. Completely untrained, which is pretty interesting because in the, just look at the heavy now. They're doing 12 reps to failure in the one leg, mm-hmm. and they're stopping at like seven reps, and then they're adding up a few reps in like a in a, in a fifth set or a sixth set just to get the training volume. So they're really doing three versus five sets, and the last set's kind of a wimpy one just to kind of add things up numerically. Yeah. So it'd be like nothing, like, okay – Wait a couple. Okay, just do me three more reps so we can add it up and make sure things are matched. You know. Right, right. So that was almost a waste of time. I would, but but they wanted to match those things. You know, so you're not getting much out of that, except accumulating the volume. 
but they were stopping probably about on those sets where they where they match the reps they're stopping 60% at about 7 reps with what they could have done so they're about 5 reps in reserve there's an average is 5.6 because they had some of those piddly sets so that's the heavy heavy condition and the light condition they were stopping 10 or 12 reps in reserve on average because they have that last set where they'd have to add up the just a few reps to make the volume the same mm-hmm. who knows what those were probably just ridiculous you know give me eight reps you know and when they've got 20 in the tank it was like it was like kind of a cool down essentially but that ended up being like 12 reps in reserve so very different reps in reserve situations so put up now if you could i think it's that very last thing i sent you is it the muscle failure versus not failure or um, um is it the the one with the dots or the one with the bars it's the very last one. It's a little itty-bitty one. Okay. I don't have so them in an order can. here. Okay. I can go back to where you sent them. It's at the upper oh, left. I see. Lesevicious. Gotcha. Doesn't sound Brazilian to me. <laughs> here it is. All right. It's up. So that shows basically what I just talked through. Uh-huh. The orange is the heavy. The light is uh, is the, is the, is in green, mm-hmm. and you just see the sets and reps. And that farmost column, I just did this. This wasn't in the paper. I put this together. Oh. Is the quad growth? And we already knew that you can train heavy to failure and light to failure and get the same quad growth. And they basically nailed that. Like it's seven point seven, seven point eight, seven point nine percent quad growth. Just about what you'd expect. That's pretty good. That's noticeable. And interestingly enough, when you trained, when they trained heavy, matched the volume, but stopped those reps, those sets short, shy of failure by 40%, by like five reps, five reps in reserve, they still got the same quad growth. So they are able to train easier with, with more, more sets to accumulate the volume and get the good growth. When they trained heavy with a 12 rep max type of load. Yeah. If they trained light and didn't train to failure, this is the bottom line of that the light 30% rep max non failure. They got like 2.5%. Okay. Non significant. And it was significantly different than the, all the other groups. Okay. No growth. So you so, stop 10, you try to train like do 25, 30 rep sets. Yeah. Or 30 plus rep sets. The average was 34, so they probably did like 40 on the first one. Yeah, it's fucking brutal, <laughs> absolutely brutal. Um, they were able to uh, get good growth. Yeah, I'm seeing that. It's it's almost as good as heavy to failure. It, it was as good. It was I mean identical basically numerically. That's as, okay. Yeah, I can get any closer. Okay. Seven point nine versus seven point five versus seven point seven. It's like right there. Okay. That's that's statistically, practically speaking, that's no different. Makes sense. It's like, you know, my mom is on the dating sites now, and you know, she's oh, in her seventies, and like, yeah. if she's seventy six. So <laughs> that's a great analogy. Know, they, yes, like, yeah. yes, like, yes. It's like, come on, it's not like fifty versus seventy. Like, we're the same age, pretty. It's much. a good analogy. Yeah. Okay. So it's twenty five though. That's a no go. That's a, they're looking for a cougar, you know. Dude, so this is crazy then. So heavy to failure. 
is just as good as heavy to not failure is just as good as light to failure <laughs> in this particular study with okay. these individuals right okay. who were were and that's the very interesting thing about this they literally let me see, I'll read the uh, I read what their description of their subjects because they pick this is why we they so often you know use uh, untrained individuals so 32 male individuals volunteer participate study 19 to 34 physically active but not engaged in any type of regular resistance training or regular participation in any strength-based sporting activity for the lower limbs in the past six months before study, nor did they participate in any parallel program of physical training during the study period. Hmm. So they were recreationally active, but they're not doing anything. Like there's no physical activity per se. They're just – it's hard to even say. Like they're physically active. So they, they weren't invalids. They weren't couch potatoes. Yeah. Um, they didn't – say i don't think here yeah i mean they're but they're average size average weight you know they're one it's the one rep max the knee extension so it's hard to know what that even means so they just put a one rep max they didn't say if it's one or two loads two reps two legs but these are basically these are fresh slates yeah they're as primed to grow as they can possibly be because they're not doing sense. anything um, so that's, that's what's fascinating. That's a big concern. It's a big issue in a lot of these studies is that obviously things change. Now imagine you, Scott, let's say you're, we'll go back to, since we talked about Benova Rose and you work your way up to where like, you know, your, your, your posture, your glutes, your low back's not an issue. And you're doing like 275 for sets of 12, let's say. Okay. And then you're, and that's where like now I'm gonna have now the now the rubber meets the road. I'm gonna start progressing with this. Uh huh. And instead of doing sets of twelve for three sets of twelve, and let's say that's all you're doing for whatever reason, it wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You'd have to probably you'd probably be doing more. But let's say you just do that all your back training three times a week. Right. You start doing sets of seven. At least five reps in the tank. And then you do like a warm down set where you add like three or four reps or something like that. Wow. That wouldn't like that. Yeah. That would be so easy. Like yeah. you were the sets, maybe just getting going when you get to rep seven. Like, right, right. Just working your way through. You know. Yeah. You got your groove going, and then you just stop. Yeah. There would be no slowing of the bar. There's slow movement. Your effort level wouldn't be all that tough. In fact, there's another figure that I sent you where they actually they 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 gathered an RPE. This is the one with the um, Got RP on the left. Yeah. All right. Rating of perceived exertion. Yeah. So they need to reps the perceived exertion. So is that? Did you throw that one up? Yes, sir. So they've got the heavy load to reps to RF means rep to failure. RNF means reps not to failure. So non-failure, and. Uh, then they have low load, which is the uh, hexagon with the lines crisscrossing through it, reps to failure. And then the uh, kind of diamond there is the low load reps not to failure. Mm. So you can see if you look across, or this is across the 16 training sessions they had, um, where they took took in like basically how, how tough was the session. Mm-hmm. The non-failure sessions were pretty easy, six out of seven, six or seven or so. It's like a little bit higher with the heavy load, but then eventually they started getting used to it. Yeah. Um, There's nothing significant. There's no interactions there. Basically, it was, it was the only difference that they saw was that 
training to failure was a nine out of ten, or nine or nine or ten. It looked like it was pretty damn close to a ten there, and at the end, whereas training not to failure was about a six or a seven, which is what you'd expect, because they're that's not to failure. It's not like it's not the doing sets of twenty or twenty-five. You're not you're gonna get a nice pump with that with something you could do thirty or thirty-five reps with. It's just not going to be that hard. Yeah. So those are relatively easy. The interesting thing I would have liked to have seen, and they couldn't do this because either you were doing heavy training or light training, you couldn't ask the same people, hey, let's, how heavy, how difficult was that light training to failure compared to the heavy training to failure? Mm, yeah. Which would you rather do? Huh. So you, you tell me, we'll, we'll even just stick with the bent over row. You know, yeah. example. So would you rather do 275 for sets of 10 or 12, three sets of 10 or 12, or do 185 for three sets of 30? Jeez. Wow. That that sounds pretty brutal, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really does, you know. I don't know if that would be – We could. I could do the math real quick. That's pretty close, I think, to what it would be. Yeah. You know, weight-wise. Yeah. Something like that. Well, it would be about one-third of the weight. Well, it would be about three-eighths of the weight. Let me do the math real quick here. This should be easy. What's my math? Two seventy-five times three divided by eight. So it'd be about actually it'd be about a hundred and three pounds. Okay. Really friggin' light for for, for about thirty-five. For about, actually, for about thirty to forty. So about thirty-five would be the average for three sets. Yeah. So you you basically would you rather do ninety-five for sets of if you took it to failure. Yeah. You could grow at least as a um a complete pure newbie beginner. Yeah. For the first 16 training sessions. And this is there's numerous studies that have demonstrated this now. Okay. But imagine imagine now like cuz you've never trained this way. Imagine you say, "Well, you know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do instead of instead of three sets. Instead of three sets of 12 with 275 because that's what I'm capable of, uh-huh. roughly, you know, three sets to failure with that load. I want to drop down to 95. And do sets of twenty, hmm. which would be nothing. Yeah, that'd be just piddly, like quarters. Right. I'm gonna peel the tw- for- all the forty fives off. Yeah. Just use the quarters. That's what they were comparing. So it's no wonder they didn't. Even in the newbies, they didn't get the growth. Okay. Yeah. Because it was so so many reps in reserve. Yeah. I I so could see though that like, there could be a benefit though, like understanding this if there was potential. So. Let, you know, if I were to answer your question, you know, which would I prefer? You know, of course, I'd prefer to be able to lift the heaviest I could possibly lift because that's always fun. Right. But, right. you know, we were talking before the show that, you know, I, I figured out kind of a trick that's allowed me to get back into doing barbell rows in the past. Uh, my glutes wouldn't turn on. And what it, what ended up happening was my low back would end up getting strained at some point. At some point, my low back would get strained and it would be like just basically like a muscle sprain in my lumbars that could take anywhere from a week to two months to recover, depending on how many times I re-injured it and everything else. So it's a movement that I had moved away from. Now, if you were to tell me, hey, you could do these sets of 20 with a lighter weight, I might be able to be able to do that without straining my lower back. Maybe there was a time that that would have looked pretty, pretty uh, intriguing to me, you know? That would have been rehab, but it wouldn't have stimulated growth. 
It didn't even do it stimulate growth. The sets of twenty didn't even stimulate growth in the untrained people. Okay. Well, you had even failure. E- even if I went to failure with a lighter weight, I'm saying, you know, that is definitely an. Op- that's one of the brilliant things about training light hmm. like this. In that type of scenario, is if you take it to failure, you do have a pretty good stimulus, at least from what they seem to show in untrained folks. Right. How would yeah. that translate to us? I, I don't know. Because I can train to failure yeah. in other other movements. You know what I mean? Right. Well, it works with Widowmakers. We know that, like with, you know, yeah. DC training. Yeah. It's why I've included it as part of pump sets with fortitude yeah. training. It just hasn't been studied that much yeah. in older folks. There is a study, there's a study with power, a Norwegian study with powerlifters, and I'm blanking on the, the details of it right now. Maybe I can look it up and post later to this thread if it's up for a while. But uh, it's poorly studied, partly because you get such a small effect. Mm. How much how much significant growth are you going to get over eight or eight or twelve weeks in someone who's been training for eight or ten years? Yeah, yeah, not very much, not very much. So it's hard to see these things. But it's definitely something I think that is we know it's a, we know it's a stimulus for muscle growth if you're training hard enough. Yeah. Because it does it equally. At least we can say we're, we're going to extrapolate from untrained people to trained people and say, well, if it it makes untrained people grow as well as it does um, trained people, then there's something to say for low load to failure and high load to failure, both being good stimuli. Hmm. Works in, works in the untrained equally well. Hopefully, works in the trained equally well. I would be willing to bet that trained people can probably. Even if they're if they're so willing, can even maybe grind out a few more reps because probably just from selection bias, people hmm. have been at it for ten or twelve years, really love to train hard, or they've learned how to train hard that they might be able to even get more out of lower load training to failure because hmm. they're just willing to do that. Hmm. Yeah, just just willing to do it in a way that I think those are more brutal. That's why the point I think we we sort of strayed away from that I was wondering about is they were in both the low load and the high load to, to failure groups, their RPE was 10, which makes sense. They're training to failure. It should be a 9 or a 10, basically, Yeah. all across the training period. But if you if, if they did a crossover, let's say, and say, well, you start off in the high load, now we're going to put you in the low load. And they asked those people who got to experience both high load to failure and low load to failure, which was harder? Which would you rather do? Would you rather, like, if you're going to go in the gym and, like, you're going to squat and everything's going to be sets of 30 or 35 to failure, mm. would you rather do that or would you rather do sets of 10 or 12 to failure? Yeah. You know, as far as, like, just the pure gruesome misery of it, the high rep stuff I think is harder, hmm. in my opinion, just from having done so many Widowmakers and things over the years like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it depends on execution style. This is why I don't do I do continuous reps and fortitude training. Ah, uh, yeah, because you you keep on like trying to grind those out, pausing, you know, as you go along. Then those just become central nervous system destroyers. Yeah, and you could definitely destroy your central nervous system with a yeah. much lighter weight, eking mm-hmm. out another rep, another rep. Yeah, right. So this is interesting. So they, you know, there's, it's 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 interesting. It's a piece of information that points to this idea of effective reps. Put this put this data here again and look at it. And on the what I put there on that, I don't know if you can throw that back up, that table that I put together. Yeah, yeah. It's up. That right next to the quad growth, I put in red there a, re- a column for reps and reserve. 
Okay. And for the heavy, it's about 5.7 on average. It's probably going to be, because remember that last set was just to get a few more reps added to the total uh-huh. to equate volume. But it was a, probably about um, five reps in reserve. And they got equal growth. Hmm. So if you go with this five reps in reserve being where you start to get effective reps, how did they, they were, they were getting like three times five, 15 effective reps in the failure group versus maybe three effective reps. Hmm. If you, if you want to equate that in a black and white mathematical fashion, which obviously you can't, right. but that number of five reps in reserve does not hold here in this situation whatsoever hmm. because the growth was the same. In the, in the to failure group, they went to seven reps, which would be about five reps in reserve, and they did all those uh, five effective reps all the way to failure in each of those sets. So that's three sets with five effective reps. Hmm. That's 15 effective reps if you're using that five, five rep um, marker as sort of your, your definition. Whereas in the other group, they were, they were stopping about five reps short of failure. They were getting maybe three reps that were, would be considered, quote-unquote, effective. But the growth was the same. Hmm. So that doesn't work out. If the effective reps is to mean anything and all those reps are the same, mm-hmm. then the rep, the rep, the growth should be about the same. If hmm. they all, it should be basically some sort of relationship between effective reps and the, and the growth that you get. Yeah. Maybe three versus 15, you know, one-fifth or something like that. It could be, it probably would be my, a kind of an exponential relationship. Hmm. So not to say there is, but we also, so there's, that suggests that, that obviously that's overly simplistic, the effective reps idea being five, being the marker. Because at least in these untrained individuals, just training heavy and stopping about five reps shy got just as much growth as long as you did enough sets to add up the volume. Yeah. Would have been interesting to see, like, you can just create more and more groups ad nauseum, but what would happen if they did just three sets instead of the average of five and a half sets and stop them uh, at five reps or 60% of the same number of reps, match the reps, by, but only 6%? Hmm. Would they have gotten any growth? Yeah. Was it only those last couple sets where things were, mm. were fatigued accumulating? Maybe that was important. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but if you look at the light scenario here, the two and a half percent, like that's probably not, there's maybe that's, that could be some glycogen, that could be some swelling. It's not much. It's one third um, of the percentage increase compared to the failure. I'm talking about the light load now. But they were stopping like at least 10 or 12 reps shy of failure. So if we consider statistically there's no growth in the non-failure low load versus the failure low load, mm-hmm. then that effective reps, there is something to say for it. Like you can't stop 10 reps shy of your failure point and expect to grow, even if you're untrained when you're most likely to grow. Like you can grow doing anything when you're untrained. Mm-hmm. But if you're training that, if it's that easy that you've got 10 or 12 reps in the tank, not going to work. You couldn't even you couldn't even, if you did that with the heavy load you stopped 12 reps in the tank you wouldn't even lift you you'd be do zero reps that'd be nothing 12 reps in reserve is zero if you're doing a 12 rep max set <laughs> yeah yeah so that can't can't, can't that can't go so another another interesting condition would be like what happens and I think this you can kind of conceptually think about this what happened if they were to stop 
um, with the stop at five reps in reserve on the lighter sets. Mm -hmm. I have the sense that if like, if you're going to do a set of, if 30 would be that absolute utter, like destroyer, you know, failure, like, okay, this person's not getting up for five minutes from the floor. If that, Mm -hmm. like they're going to be there until lunchtime Mm -hmm. type of thing. Stopping five reps shy of failure is doable. Hmm. I would bet you'd get a pretty good growth stimulus from that. If you did sets of 25 with a 30 rep max. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, yeah, that, so that would be interesting to see what would have happened there if they, if they would have done that. So that might be a follow-up study is to look at this. They looked at it from the percentage. They matched volume of the percentage of reps in per set and then added up the sets to match the volume. Mm. So they did easy sets to match the volume. If you trained heavy, it ended up working. Mm. If you trained light because the reps in reserve were so high, you're so far from failure, you didn't get anything from it. So that points towards the effective reps idea. Yeah. Is it stop 10 or 12 shy? No, you didn't get into the effective rep range. But I think if they went to five reps shy, they probably would have. That would have been close enough to failure. They probably would have gotten some good growth out of it. That's my guess. That's just my sense. Yeah. My bro sense. <laughs> right, right. Of that. So this is just, I, I, hopefully this just gets me. I thought this was a, a fascinating and really well done study. And really, this is like cool science. Mm-hmm. It tells you you can't go in and do, you can train high reps to failure and you're going to grow. Hmm. But it's a failure and it's brutal. Hmm. If you start stopping your sets, high reps, like 10 reps shy of failure, probably not going to get any out of it. Yeah. But if you train heavy and you decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get the, get the work in and do an extra couple reps, but stop maybe four or five reps shy of failure. There's at least some stimulus in an untrained person that's there. My guess, of course, the more trained you get, mm-hmm. and I've said this numerous times on numerous podcasts, is that the number of, of reps you have to be the reps in reserve in order for those to be failure narrows in and becomes much closer to the, to zero. Yeah. So you can't stop five reps shy of failure. If you're trained, if you're, if you're Jordan Peters, Mm -hmm. you can't stop five reps shy of failure. That's not a stimulus anymore. It's too easy. Yeah. So you're going to have to come pretty dang close and then you run into recovery issues. Yeah. And great insight though, for someone that is newer, you know? Yeah. I feel like too, it's the people that are newer that are that you're more likely to get hurt when you start getting closer to failure because then you start you don't know how to keep the tension in that target muscle and then your neck is starting to go up and you're you know you start using bad form and you're more likely to to do something stupid and twist the wrong way when the mm-hmm. weight starts getting really hard when you're new so i guess it it could be very beneficial this could be great information for somebody that is you know early in their training yeah and these are knee extensions. Okay. So there's, I mean, there's very little, I mean, there's obviously a learning curve that's going to happen there, but there's not a form issue. There's not much of a mind muscle connection issue there. Yeah. But I'm saying though, as insight for anyone for uh, you apply that to any other muscle group they're working to, you know, right. Drugs, well, I'm, anything. I'm, getting, I'm connecting, I'm connecting what you just said with okay. the study actually. Yeah. So in this, in this case, you can actually go to failure and as an untrained person, have a you you got a better sense that you actually took that muscle to failure given what the person's capable of oh yeah yeah because it's just a quad there's no there's no cheating there's no swinging yeah they got them sitting up they probably had them buckled in on the seat 
Yeah. Like it's just the one muscle. It's an isolation exercise. Whereas if you're doing a bent over row and you haven't learned to contract and lift with your lats uh-huh. and your back musculature, you start using your arms, you start using other things. You can't eat until you've got a good mind muscle connection. You can't even bring that set to a failure point mm. where failure is dependent upon the target muscle. Yeah. So it's actually, if you're an untrained person, it's worth your while to focus on that form hmm. because you can, you can focus on form and get, learn a good mind muscle connection and still be multiple reps shy of failure hmm. per this study. And still, as long as it's not 10 or 12 mm-hmm. and still get a good growth stimulus, you don't got to go to failure. Hmm. You don't have to risk hurting yourself, straining like that, all those sorts of things. It's you're better off spending those early years training the mind-muscle connection, learning good, quote-unquote, training form, so you make the muscle you're trying to train the one that you actually are training, so that with years down the road, when you're becoming so trained, and now the effective reps mean fewer and fewer reps in reserve, mm-hmm. you're actually able to do that. Yeah. If you've learned how to train like an idiot, and you're throwing the weight all over the place, and you don't have great genetics, or just a natural inclination, then... Your failure point, let, let's say you just, for whatever reason, you're just someone who just never really learned to connect with the muscles they're trying to train. Right. But you get better and better at training really, really hard and not focusing the workload on the target muscle, but just letting it go all over the place. Mm-hmm. So that means what you'll end up doing when you're doing bent over rows is you're doing really sloppily. You can now train to failure, but you don't have a very focused stimulus on your back. Hmm. You're not training the muscle you're trying to. Whereas you take someone who has early on learned how to train the back muscle really, really well. Now failure training for them five years down the road is back musculature failure training. It's not bent over row failure training, which means using everything you possibly can with the weight around. Yeah. So you're totally right. Yeah, learn how to train the muscle right. You're going to get a great stimulus. You don't have to go to failure. Stop shy of being sloppy. Mm-hmm. Because you're still getting a great stimulus, learn how to be get a better stimulus, and then that skill will will help you down the road. Yeah. So. Yeah, makes sense. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks for watching another podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. And thank you to our great sponsor, TrueNutrition.com, for making this all possible. TrueNutrition.com is owned by Dante Trudell, the creator of DC Training. He wanted to create a supplement company that offered high-quality third-party tested supplements at a fair price. High-quality protein powders, just about every type you could think of. Huge variety of flavors, plus health and performance supplements. Check them out, TrueNutrition.com. And hey, if you use our code ADVICES, you directly support our podcasting. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the program. Yeah. All right. What do we got question-wise before you? You're, you're, looking, you're looking sleepy. Uh, let's see what we have here. We'll start out with, uh, we'll start out with one that's going to be, I, I don't even know where you're going to go with this. If it was anybody else on the Think Big podcast and Advices podcast, I'd be like, this is not a question for us, but Scott, you always surprise me. Uh, Joshua asks us, let's see here. Hey guys, what is your take on cracking your knuckles or any other small joint? Helpful or harmful uh, or just annoying? So I, I can only come at this from the perspective of Chinese medicine. So the knuckle cracking thing is basically, uh, it has to do with, formation of, of uh, air bubbles in the synovial fluid. 
when you compress a joint, like you change the, um, there's, there's gas that's in synovial fluid. There's gases in water that will come out relative to the pressure that's there. So supposedly when you crack your, your knuckles, I dug in on this trying to find an answer to this somewhere. I found something a long time ago. See, I knew it. There's, yeah, air, <laughs> it's air bubbles that are supposedly because of the pressure change in synovial fluid popping across the joint. Okay. So, um, here's what I did. So I had, I don't have these issues anymore because I've sort of remedied things for my joints um, with, you know, training differently. Fortitude training actually helped a lot, a lot of stretching, various things. But I used to have joint problems. I'm trying to think what, I would, and my low back actually, I would pop my low back all the time to get some relief. And what that would do is it would move the move the joints around and release the muscle spasms that were causing oh. cause me pain. Okay. And my uh, instructor for body work, my Twain instructor in Chinese medicine, say stop. Said stop doing that. Like you're you're ruining your joints. It's bad for your joints. Huh. Um, the idea being that you're creating some shear stress across the um, the cartilage in the joint mm. when you're doing that. And you know who knows exactly what that popping is. That's my best guess. It's just the air bubbles, but. You're basically forcing the joint to go in directions not meant to go huh. repeatedly, and you're sort of forcefully doing it. That should be something you do only every once in a while. Okay. Um, like when you're going in for a set, when you've got um, a practitioner who's there is going to make sure those spasms don't come back, and you've got a good treatment plan coming along. So kind of like taking anti-inflammatories when you need them in order to get past some pain and inflammation mm-hmm. and set yourself on the right path. You don't want to do that all the time. That makes sense. So he's, like, he's like, okay, st- stop popping your back. So for like two years, I stopped popping my back, mm-hmm. and the pain never went away. <laughs> I the same. My pain, like I literally for two years, I like on a daily basis, multiple times a day, I would resist that. Yeah, and I didn't see any effect from it. So, um, that's my my guess. It's probably if you're doing it all the time, you probably got something going on that you could remedy. You're yeah. probably doing it from pain, and you probably got some sort of arthritis going on. So look into something like UC two. Mm. Even people who don't have uh, unnatured collagen type two is mm-hmm. something that the known the thought mechanism is that it comes in through what are called the pyrus patches in your intestines, mm. which are part of the immune surveillance system in your GI tract, which is kind of important. Stuff comes in from the outside of your body that you take in through your mouth. Yeah. Outside of your body comes into your body, and it's sort of a it's like a checkpoint. It's like the TSA for molecules coming into your body like we're gonna you know we do a little bit of a pat down on things Mm. and the undernatured collagen type 2 is coming through these pyrus patches and supposedly training into the immune system the idea that collagen is an okay thing to have and what this apparently does is it stops people who have sort of a almost a subclinical um uh, autoimmune type of situation going on where their own immune system is attacking their own cartilage. Oh, wow. Thinking that it's not supposed to be there, that it's, yeah. a, it's foreign in some way, then that's the cause of people with arthritis to some huh. degree. Okay. It's not outright rheumatoid arthritis per how it would typically be uh, diagnosed. Yeah. But it seems to work pretty okay. well. And that's thought to be the mechanism. So that's something that I think might help someone who's constantly cracking their knuckles. Hmm. The small joints. Okay. Otherwise, you may, I mean, there's all sorts of things that could happen. You know, you may have damage to the joint. You may have, you know, tight musculature from repetitive activity, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. if you're constantly doing it, you know, I'd figure out why and go, you're treating the branch mm. in Chinese medicine. 
which is you're treating the fact that it's bothersome to you and you can do that little pop and get things to move around. It releases the spasms and probably gets some synovial fluid moving around in there again, helps yeah. with lubrication, but it's a, it's a quick fix. Hmm. It's not treating the root of the issue, which could be anything from hydration to your immune system with UC2 to, you know, a bunch of other things, yeah. multiple other things. So you can get UC2 as well in, um, J flex product from true nutrition or sponsor along with a bunch of other stuff in that product. I've been, I'm on my second month of that stuff now and uh, second month of my long, the second month of the rest of my life, Scott. Yes. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. Scott, yes. The first day of the second month of the rest of my life. And are you feeling less pain? I am. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. working. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. What, what joints are where? Uh, my shoulder, my AC gotcha. joint. Yeah. Right on. Right on. It's hard to know because it should be getting better anyway. Right, right. You know, so. But it's definitely but, though, yeah, it's it's improving and I'm going to attribute it in part to that. Travis James has a question. He says, can uh, Dr. Scott talk about the prep where he experimented with higher protein than normal? Did it benefit him in any way, pros and cons? And then maybe slide into the area of minimum, minimum protein dosing uh, to stimulate MPS, maximum protein dosing to avoid uh, the system full refractory effect and the state of excess protein in the body. Uh, how much of the excess protein can be oxidized directly as energy compared to how much is converted to glucose pool via, via gluconeogenesis? Gluconeo. I love it. That's your favorite word, gluconeogenesis. That's actually a good topic for like Gluco. an entire podcast. Yeah, it really would be, wouldn't yeah, it? To be honest, um, I tell you what, I'll give I'll give because that's a he, he took the time to write that out. He's actually got two other questions that are pretty good ones. One of the things I was doing with that, and that was a few years back now, but I remember I was using casein at mm -hmm. night, pretty high amounts actually. And I've been using there's a what's it called? There's a Greek yogurt product that's got like a couple grams of carbs and. It's like two grams of carbs, maybe two grams of fat yeah. in a serving. And um, it's like 450 grams, 450 calories in a, a container. Okay. I throw some cinnamon in there and I, I have one of those before I go to bed. Yeah. And the appetite suppression is amazing. Really? Okay. Oh, it's awesome. It's incredible. So that's one of the biggest things with higher protein is that the gluconeogenesis, the glucagon, which gets elevated from all that excess protein coming in, it helps turn on the gluconeogenesis, um, will reduce your appetite substantially. Oh. So it's huh. hard to say. You know, I'm, I'm at that point where I'm looking for little subtle effects. It's not like I'm going to do something like bump up my protein and all of a sudden come on stage 10 pounds heavier. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been, you know, competing for you know, almost 25 years now, but at this for like 40 or close to it. So it's not like I ha saw a huge impact there, but just having the appetite suppression was gigantic. Okay. Ease. Um, and I think, I think that may have been the year that I had that awful dilemma with rusty. Oh, it was. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. So I have a video on Instagram from sometime within the last month where I was, I was on target. I looked really good, I think. And I just, everything crumbled mm -hmm. because of that 
that stressful situation. So it's hard to say. I don't have any stage comparisons. But I was as I think I was as good as I've been in quite as almost ever then in doing that. And the thing I think that makes that's helpful is if you could if you could, just imagine this scenario. This is sort of getting you know this isn't d- diving into you know pro- protein dosing and the refractory effect you know those sorts of things. But if you can do something that just if you could hypnotize yourself mm-hmm. for instance. Or something else that would eliminate hunger altogether. So you're not suffering from hunger. You're not stressed about food. You're not thinking about food. You're sleeping better because of it. Yeah. That will have a tremendous effect. Yeah, it really would, wouldn't it? Sleep is so important. That's one of the things you know that I I struggle with year many times during prep. Yeah, is sleeping poorly and uh, trying to figure out that. You know, it's it's always like you know a different solution each time. It seems like yeah. But without with more protein to help with that, so hmm. advantageous. Huh. So that's and and for me when I go low carb and and the higher protein is there, I don't care about whether it's technically keto or not. Mm-hmm. It's the high protein and the lower carbohydrate. And the fact that you really can't you can't eat excessive protein and have it store as fat. It's pretty it's gonna be almost impossible hmm. to just get that much in and not suffer from ammonia toxicity. Yeah. From breaking down the protein, so when you break down the protein gluconeogenesis, you get a lot of ammonia that'll build up in the body, and you can you can you can smell it on your breath. Yeah, I've, I've yeah, been there. It's, yeah, it's on your it's on your like your your sweaty gym clothes. Yeah, put those things in a gym bag and forget them, and come back the next week. Whew. Oh, yeah, you ruin that gym bag, man. Yeah. So, anyway, there those are some of the advantages, but we yeah we could protein. Yeah. You get into a, what's called rabbit starvation syndrome, which Travis can look up if he wants. I can send him a paper if he wants to message me on that. So it's a good question, though. Yeah. I know that uh, it was just last night I recorded with uh, Jeff Roberts and Lee Priest, and somebody had asked uh, Lee about his protein intake when he competed, and his protein was very high. I want to say he pushed it up. I mean, it wasn't wasn't like crazy talk, but I want to say he was like over 400 grams, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, he went higher on his protein. Yeah. I've gone, there was once, this is, this is back in acupuncture school, and, and I competed too when I was going through my medical, kind of medical training. Yeah. And that's for the first, I think this was like the last year. I was taking, it was a Western nutrition class. Yeah. We did a dietary recall, and it just happened that it coincided after I competed. And I, and I was wanting, I was, I bumped up my food, but I wanted to keep my, my, um, uh, appetite under control, so I just didn't like rebound like crazy. I was taking in a massive amount of protein. Mm-hmm. It just actually, I wanted to eat it. To be honest, I was having like like steak and some Ooh. you know higher fat, tasty like yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and my dietary recall showed 700 grams of protein a day. Wow, <laughs> that period of time, yeah. But that was like a that was a very you know isolated incident. But it was really <laughs> funny when I to turn that into my teacher you know she's a naturopathic physician yeah and, and and i think a master's degree in nutrition maybe something like that and she's like scott are you sure this is right i'm like yeah here's the scenario this is right i didn't there's no math errors in here this is just what i was doing she's like okay i yeah, thought that yeah. was a little high it's like yeah i know it's high i was i'm just sort of i'm playing around with these things like okay good just just checking that's like more than a week's you know, worth of protein for a normal oh, yeah. person you know it was crazy yeah i was i mean but, but even even at 700 grams it's only 2800 calories Okay. Yeah. Wow. Right. 
I mean, so, and I was eating more than that. I was probably at, you know, four or 5,000 calories a day, maybe. Yeah. At that point in time, just trying to, you know, refeed. Wow. But some half of my calories, let's say half of my calories were from protein. You can imagine, you don't want to eat much more at that, with that many grams of protein. Yeah. It was easy to eat 4,000 calories, which, let's say I was 200 pounds and my maintenance was 15 times that. So my maintenance was um, 3,000 calories. Yeah. So I've, you know, I'm at maybe three and a half or four thousand calories, just trying to refeed a little bit on those day on those days, and so some of that was some of those. I think I was, those was one of those preps where I was I, afterwards. I felt really good, so I was training every day, so I had the extra energy expenditure. Oh, Sometimes yeah. you feel that way. So four thousand calories. That's that's not off the charts, really. Just a lot of protein. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, right. seven hundred was pretty high though. That's, we we have one here from. Uh... You can say his name, Motaz, M-O-T-A-Z, Motaz Roy. He yeah. says, um, best tricks to keep dryness and fullness the last days before a contest for somebody who doesn't need a peak week. So I'm guessing he's saying that he's probably already looking pretty good. He's not going to, he doesn't feel he needs to do a bunch of crazy stuff, uh, but he, he does want to maintain the fullness and the dryness. You, he just answered and you just reiterated the answer to the question, which is if you don't need a peak week, that means you're already dry and full. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. Okay. Well, let's say this. How about, yeah. (laughs) Could you use, yeah, I guess you need a peak. Guess if you're not exactly show ready, then you do need a peak week. Don't you? Right, like the, it's like yeah. So if I'm not thirsty, what should I drink? Like nothing. <laughs> if I'm not, if I'm already dry and full, what should I change? Nothing. Yeah. If I don't need a peak wake, then what should I do to keep dryness and fullness? Nothing. You already got it. Yeah. Because you're like chances are. Let, let's look at it this way. Like if you're yeah. already, um, if you don't need a peak week, I think I know what he's getting at. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want um, like a full blown all out peak week. Yeah. He wants tricks tricks and tips and, and sneaky little things that, you know, kind of make it easy. Minor, minor changes. I think he's probably thinking he's probably already yeah. looking pretty good, but let's, let's push that just a little further. Yeah. Um, I would say take, uh, take two or three days off of training, Ah. you know, before, before, so that gets rid of any inflammation in the yeah. muscle, those sorts of things. It'll, it'll allow you to, assuming you got some carbs in your diet, um, carb up, but, but have it higher carb day, like two or three days out. Mm-hmm. That'll fill you up and then go back to your regular diet if it's low carb at that point in time. And then just drink normally for your normal amounts. You can even maybe know what that is by measuring it. Yeah. So you have an idea so you don't trick yourself. And then just, you know, cut your water off at six o'clock the night before the show. Okay. So drink what you normally would. You know, if it's two gallons and normally it's a gallon and a half up to six, then just drink a gallon and a half up to six and don't have that less half that extra half gallon the night before the show. So the day off of training, the extra carbs a couple of days beforehand, um, we're talking like, you know, 500, a thousand grams yeah. of carbs, maybe something like that. Probably 500 a couple of days, but yeah. it's like, it's hard to say cause he's, we it's, don't, it's the, it's those generic questions without context, you know, that's yeah. they're hard to answer. And we don't, we'd have to almost know what he looked like and you know, what, what were the minor, cause we're kind of, I'm guessing, I'm inferring that there is some minor changes he wants to make. You know, but I'm trying to guess as to what what those minor changes would even be. You know, those are I mean, those are there's a bunch of little things. I mean, those are tricks. 
Yeah. Cut your sodium before you cut your water. Yeah. I mean, it, like it's there's a, there's the spectrum. Like there's the full blown peak mm. week where you try to manipulate everything. You you know you you make sure you're really depleted. You just low like a motherfucker. Yeah. You know, two thousand grams of carbs. You know, for three days each. Like, um, Antoine Vaillant when he came back to win the mm-hmm. second show he did this year after the Tampa Pro he did. I forget was it the Chicago, Chicago New, New York, York Pro was in Cal- New York was in Cali. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 he, no, wait, he did, the, they had the, the California pro, that, is that where he won? He won in California, but was it the Cali California, pro? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I could, or was it in Vegas? I don't remember, whatever. Yeah, that was in Vegas, that's right, the California okay, yeah, pro was, was in Vegas, the, the, okay, see, New, the New York pro was in Tampa. Whatever show that was. <laughs> yeah. But he, but he was really, he was really, really over depleted, you know, and, and sort of looked stringy, especially the upper body's legs, you know, yeah. ridiculous, but. So what I, I think he he said he was doing like a thousand grams of carbs for like like a I think there's two weeks between the show for like ten days something like that. Wow, wow! Just filled out like crazy. So like that's one end of you know like going for it and filling up really hard and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. A full blown peak week would be like you know do everything you know to the letter that you know to be as full and as dried out as possible. Yeah. And then there's you know like what Lee Priest would do. We talked about we talked about Lee Lee wouldn't do any of that stuff because he although you know he only really got in shape a couple good times in his IFBB pro career and when he came back he was in really good shape but mm-hmm. who knows he could have been better I think but um, it wasn't a matter of his peak week but he would just cut his water off like you know the afternoon before I don't think he did any crazy shit mm-hmm. you can ask maybe you know yeah but so that's like that's like a trick and there's then there's things in between so. Keep keeping dryness and fullness um, is a function of which of those you're lacking mm-hmm. the most. If you're already dry, it means you're already lean, and filling up should be easy to do without spilling. Yeah. So, but th- that's my best sort of middle of the road, like not a full blown peak week, a couple of days of training off, have a high carb day, two or three days out, and then cut your sodium off a little bit. Just not completely. You're going to get it in some foods, but Cut cut off your normal intake of sodium on condiments, that kind of thing, and then your water, maybe at six. So sodium first, then the water. Yeah. And see what happens, but um, I always uh, still practicing stuff is helpful. Mm, yeah. You know, because if you really like, you can, if you don't really need one, you can actually screw things up more trying to do these sorts of things. True. Because you know, like so, like so, imagine like. Everything's going great. You like to train like Guy Nino likes to train like right up to the show. He doesn't do shit. Mm-hmm. Doesn't change anything. Just gets in really good shape. Gets actually diced, and he just trains right through. Yeah, I think he trains like the day before the show if he can. Yeah. So imagine just say, okay, guy, look, you know you shouldn't do that. You're going to stop your cut your training off on Wednesday yeah. for a Saturday show. The guy's going to be like ripping his hair out, you know. Yeah. He's gonna be tripping, like he'd be going bonkers, stressing because he wants to do something. Have all this extra energy that would not help. Yeah, the stage look. I don't think you're probably right. So, so yeah, not not taking those. Maybe training could help some people. I remember, like one of the John uh, Meadows has done all sorts of stuff. Of course, over the years, he's you know tried various things out. But I remember one year at the Masters Nationals, he was. We, because we sat, we had our our tanning appointments were like right next to one another. I think both times, mm-hmm. so we were just kind of talking about you know what we're doing, and John kept everything exactly the same. Like he trained, like 
he was basically approaching his this is when he was working for um teenation still i think it's a long while ago remember that back mm-hmm. in the day he used to write for them and he was using like their supplement line yeah. with the hydrolyzed casein and all that good stuff and using that intro workout so he was going to like drink that intra drink like as if he were going on stage as if you were going to train yeah it was a training session keeping everything exactly the same because that's he knew he looked great mm-hmm. when he was taking in that drink with a highly branched cyclic dextrin or whatever they the carb source was i think that's what it was and the casein and everything else he just mm-hmm. changed changed nothing just as if just going right through the show instead of actually having a training session he'd just be on you know pumping up and going on stage and posing right and it worked. Pretty, I mean, I think he got. I think he got second. That I mean, he got second a bunch of times. But you know, it, he didn't win his card. It wasn't like all of a sudden like that was the deal breaker for him or the game changer for him. But he looked great, and it was one very valid approach. All right. That you know is a, is a good one for a lot of people. I think. Um, Jeremy says um, this is. I think back to our topic. Would training uh, doing a ton of low intensity sets throughout the day for maybe two months at a time uh, for weaker muscle groups have any hypertrophy effects. Example, a mechanic having good forearms or a cyclist with big quads and hamstrings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He's heard me talk about the mechanics before probably. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I've known guys, who is this that did this? People who own gyms, yeah, you know, who like will go and do that. Like they'll train calves that way. I could see that, yeah. So they could just walk over and like they'll just do a set of calves, you know, four or five times a day. Yeah. So absolutely, that could be possible. Um, but it's a matter, you know, and that's he's. I'm sure he's probably heard me talk about all these these um, compensatory overload studies where they cut the soleus and watch the gastroc mm-hmm. grow and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the quail studies, those are all like chronic, persistent, continuous overload throughout the day. And that's where you get tremendous rates of growth. Hmm. So he's talking about mimicking that for weaker muscle growth, muscle groups. I think if you did that and made sure it was an isolation exercise yeah, and not enough to, to wear you down. Oh yeah. You know, so yeah. I wouldn't like, Oh, I've heard of people doing this too. Um, I wouldn't like, you know, go and try to like do a set of squats to failure. Right. Yeah. You know, That's what I was thinking. Squats, deadlifts, like you know, but maybe for like, um, calves or hamstrings or forearms. Yeah. You know, something like that. Triceps, maybe, um, you gotta be careful with arms, I think, because there's, they're so involved with other things that if you overtrain, like you try to do it with triceps, you get a triceps tendonitis and then you're kind of screwed. You can't do it. Any pressing. Yeah. And it can even affect your pulling movements too so yeah but yeah that's a possibility especially if you can't get a good mind muscle connection on those ah, otherwise yeah, yeah so you'll entrain that pretty well so yeah. i could see but, yeah i could see it working good for some things we, we talked about that a long time ago when i first got my lat pull down machine here at the house mm, and, mm-hmm. and jordan was still on the program and jordan was like yeah if you were to you know do a set of pull downs every night before bed just do a set. He was like, your back will be bigger in a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've known people who've done that with like push-ups. There you go. We've talked, yeah. uh, or maybe we didn't talk about it. I heard it on another podcast. It was on mind, mind pump. They were talking about that. They set up what they call trigger sessions 
They were talking mm. about the benefits of doing exercises throughout the day, that there are benefits that like if you were to stop right now and do 20 push-ups or we'll say 10 push-ups, that it clears your brain too. And then you sit back oh, at yeah. your desk and you're, you're a lot more effective. And they were saying that like we can look to people in like the prison population that every hour, you know, okay, I do 10 pull-ups at 10 o'clock. 11 o'clock, I do right. 10 pull-ups. Every hour, it's a way to keep their brains busy, but they mm -hmm. can develop some muscle out of it, too, by just every hour they do something, you know. My, um, I, had a, I, for, I had forgotten about this, but I had a wrestling coach. I think he was my eighth-grade wrestling coach who said, like, for arms, like, when you're for, – for arms and chest, like, if you're watching TV, you should do that. Yeah, and I had like these 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 plastic DB dumbbells, okay, and uh, DP I think it was a DP for life. That's that's the logo. I'm trying to remember what the name of the company was, but that'll ring a bell with somebody, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. And I yeah. would I brought those I'd have those down like in our living room. They normally were upstairs, kind of in the we had a guest room where all the weights were that my dad had to sneak up there and train. And uh, when I was a kid, and uh, but I would do like. I think it was a hundred push-ups, huh. and and I think it was like a hundred curls or something like that. So I just take the dumbbells. I can't remember exactly how I did it, but I would just like try to rack up a hundred, hmm. and just like do you know do what's that failure? Do the next set to failure, next set to, back and forth until I got to a hundred on each arm. Yeah, God, he used to like, and there was also the stairs. Like you had, oh, I forgot about this. These were fucking brutal. So the, the stairs up to that that um, that attic where we had the guest bedroom attic is above the garage kind of space. I would do unilateral calf raises. And, uh, there was probably, I think there was like 23 steps or something like that. Some odd number. Mm -hmm. And I do like 20 on each foot huh. and on my, on my way up, you know, one at a time, all the way up and all the way down, hmm. which took like 15 minutes. Or like that. Yeah. 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 So, I don't know how well it paid off. I know I actually <laughs> tore some things oh. doing that at one point in time. Yeah. Yeah. So right. my, uh, yeah. Perineal muscle, peroneus longus muscle got torn on one side doing that. I got such a pump. Whew. Anyway, another story, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I was too young. I, I'd gone through people. I don't know if that, you know, I'm not sure how much that helped, but certainly develops some mindset. That's for sure. Yeah. Probably fed into my, you know, tendency for being an OCD bodybuilder. Yeah, if he I'll tries bet. this with something, if he does this with his calves or something, let us let us know. You know how it pans out. Yeah. I want to see. Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, we'll take this one. Another one from Travis here. He says, um, if you were to pick one, he says for a health and longevity uh, type situation, um, would it make more sense to cruise slightly above TRT or cruise slash slightly above TRT in the off season and then blast during a prep? or blast during the off-season while calories are there uh, to support growth and then maintain the tissue uh, on TRT during uh, or slightly above during a prep phase? So, so he's asking from a health, longevity, and, and from a progress optimization standpoint. So we got to break this down, Travis. Um, Progress optimization, when do you measure progress? That's the hard thing. If you want to look as good as you can on stage, probably the former. 
that's the way guys have figured out how to do it. You know, HRT in the off season or nothing back in the old school day. Mm-hmm. And then when you diet down, you would have more in there to hold on to the muscle that you gained with food as your main anabolic hmm. in the off season. It would probably look better on stage that way. Um, I think actually blastering the off season when calories are there to support the growth, um, calories are going to support the growth regardless. So, and then maintain the tissue on TRT. I think you'd be, it'd be probably somewhat disastrous. Hmm. I'd rather, as far as looking good on stage, having it there during a prep, I think is more important. Yeah. That's what I would think. Have you um, ever experienced or known people to experience with lower doses during their prep? Because I know in the last few years, that's become a more popular idea of like, well, what is the least amount I can get away with and still, you know, achieve my look? I think Ben Chow did that. Okay. He competed uh, two days ago. Oh, okay. He was, what he, because he, you know, Ben Chow is, right? Yeah, yeah, we just had okay. him on. It's just bodybuilding. He was having some kidney issues that he, he was talking yeah. about. So it makes right. sense that he would want to keep it low. Yeah, he had some health issues. And he I think he like literally pulled everything out. Okay. I can't remember what the details were because he talked about it. This was like six weeks ago maybe. Okay, yeah. So And he looked pretty damn good. The photos I saw, they're on, on both Facebook and Instagram, same shots. Looked pretty damn good. So um, I think – it's there's a there's one of the things like how much gear can you get away with or how much gear would you use is that there's an issue between um toxicity having its adverse effects mm. versus what you get from the anabolism of the gear itself so what some people might find in terms of using less is that they're they're using less orals which were probably of orals versus injectable the main contributor to toxicity yeah if they're finding using less, they're probably using less of the orals, and that would have the greater impact on the overall look because they're removing the toxicity. So if you go from, let's say, I don't know, just give, throw out some numbers, 500 grams of injectables and 500 grams of orals mm-hmm. to, to 1,000 or 800 grams of injectables and no orals, yeah, that could that would probably produce a better look, I think. Then even even like 500 grams of injectables for some people, and maybe even 300 grams of orals, depending on how well they do with the with the uh, toxicity. Yeah. So that's there's some interchange there that might explain why that would be the case. But that's the thing. A lot of guys. Like, this is the question you still keep hearing asked is, and it always never it it, it made sense to me, but it's making more and more sense to me. I've been thinking about it especially because it keeps on coming up is when should I drop my, I think, I think Dave Cross got asked this question. Yeah. The, when should I drop my gear? Like, you know, yeah, but when should you drop out? the oils they were asking, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you don't want to have like, you know, big swollen lumps on stage. Right. Um, but you also don't want to have a hormonal crash or have a scenario where, you know, now you're, now you've got greater aromatization coming it's not matched by incoming androgens. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to like be throwing off that balance that you've got, that you've had in, in place for months during your, your prep right? by pulling everything out um, necessarily. So unless, of course, this is the lump, lump and bump thing, or unless you're removing toxicity, which was causing some water retention and blurring your physique. Hmm. And that makes sense to me. Yeah. Is if someone's been like, you know, let's say the trend stresses them and 
it keeps them up at night, so they hold water because of the stress. Yeah. Of the of the transomnia. Yeah. Or, you know, they're using anadrol, which makes them hold water, and D-ball, which makes them hold water. Not the best prep, but even if they're using like like Winnie and Anavar, but they're using large amounts, mm-hmm. and they pull those down, and they and they drop water because of that. Mm-hmm. That would be a reason why that would make sense yeah. to me at least. But just pulling it all out. That's just always like that's the old school way to do it. Um, and my guess is just people would feel better and you'd stress less. Maybe have less things to juggle too. Yeah. You know, you don't have to worry about like, oh, God, I do this, 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 or this. So like you have this long checklist all right. of, you know, shaving and getting your color and manipulating everything else that you might do if during a peak week mm-hmm. on top of all the other gear related things. Now you just like, eh, I don't have to worry about the gear anymore because it's gone. Yeah. Out yeah. of the system. And I feel better. Yeah. So feeling good is important. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah, it really, it really is. is. I didn't always yeah. think that, you know, at one point I felt like, oh, you have to, you have to just endure, you know, right. but really the better you can feel, the better the results are going to look, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, and there's to a certain degree that this is what I'm kind of getting at with the toxicity and the, and the trade off. It's almost yeah. like, you know, once you get to feel where you're feeling too shitty, like then you're past, then you're on the, on the downslope. You're, 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 it's too much. Yeah. You know, you're not get like you, there's a quote unquote, I got to suffer. It's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going right. to be hungry, blah, blah, blah. But when you're just like so dragging ass, like, okay, my body is just, I'm going to crumble. Right. If I try to keep this up, you know, it's not going to, it can't, it can't, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And it's having such an adverse effect that you're better pulling back overall and, you know, maybe looking fresher, being able to pose better, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things, even with, you know, another half a pound or a pound of body fat. Yeah. Yeah. You may have two pounds less water because everything else is running better and you're happier and you're less stressed. So good question. So I think we should come back to that protein one because there's some good stuff there. All right. Well, I'll save that. And uh, that wraps us up for the day. Cool. So Scott, as always, much appreciated, man. All right on brother. Thank you guys for handling the technical shit. Yes. That's my job. That's my job. You don't need to worry about that. computer thing and this mouse thing i just like don't know what the fuck's going on sometimes you just have scott in a box and we give him studies yeah exactly like just feed me studies like just put it in and i'll just spit out the information yes that's all scott doesn't even set the camera up he has someone else there just sets it all up and he just sit in that chair scott and start talking about the study that you know that was it that was all i that's just my mind does one thing yeah one thing studies and then exercise as well Yes. And let the dogs out. You also can yep. feed them and let them out. Right. Oh, and I you work on your up, truck. I pick things up. I put them down. I read studies. In the I truck. regurgitate them. In the truck, too. Pretty much in the truck. Yeah. With the dogs. <laughs> and the we summed it up. That's it. Yeah. That's me in a box. All right, guys. Well, uh, besides that, Scott also wrote a book. It's called Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. If you want to check that out, you can go to byobbcoach.com. Dot com and check out his training program over at fortitudetraining.net. We'll have links to all that in the description. And of course, check out our awesome sponsor, truenutrition.com. Uh, use our code ADVICES. If, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can see more of this and a bunch of other stuff on the YouTube page, Think Big Bodybuilding Media. Uh, and that's it. Productive Scott it. Stevenson, Scott McNally. We'll see you guys. Peace.